0: Well, we are talking about life with Jesus going through the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be really spending most of the year doing this. And we've uh, had, we spent a little bit of time last year and then a good chunk of this year already that we've been talking about this. We're talking about what life with Jesus looks like. And there's a lot of things that can get in the way of your life with Jesus. Whether you are a Christian and have been a Christian for a long time, or maybe you're just exploring Christianity, there's a a lot of things that could get in the way of experiencing life with Jesus. And there's a lot of things that you can probably think that come to mind when you think about that. Uh, There's temptations that we face that might get us off track There's even kind of hardship and difficulty that sometimes life is going well and so we're following Jesus and we have life with Jesus when life is good, but then when trials happen, when suffering happens, when difficulty happens, then it can sometimes move us away from life with Jesus. Uh, Sometimes it is not temptations or trials, it's kind of persecution or other people making our faith harder and to actually have life with Jesus, we have to be bold or we have to stand up in the middle of a crowd or face rejection from friends or family or coworkers or whatever it might be. And that can make life with Jesus difficult. It can take us away from life with Jesus. There's a lot of things. But there's one I think that we often don't think about. I think it's not something that probably most of the days that you're thinking about your faith or that you're thinking about Christianity or thinking about life with Jesus, it's probably not one that immediately comes to mind is this is what makes it hard. And yet, it's probably actually the biggest obstacle to life with Jesus. It's probably the most dangerous of all because of what it is, but also because we don't usually think about it. And that is pride. Pride. And yet, again, even just that word, you probably didn't think, maybe some of you did, but you probably didn't think this week, man, my struggle with pride is keeping me from experiencing all the life with Jesus that he wants for me. And yet, pride is probably the biggest obstacle to you experiencing life with Jesus, to you living out a faith with Jesus and all the dimensions that he desires for you. Here is how some of um, kind of the ancient church thought about pride and even uh, in this, not this century, I guess, uh, but last century of how they speak about pride. I just want you to hear this and I could have given you like a thousand quotes around this, but this is St. Augustine and he says, And what is the origin of our evil will but pride? For pride is the beginning of sin. Think about that. Pride is the beginning of sin, he says. Or this, he says, there can never have been and never can be and there never shall be any sin without pride. You may have heard something about pride being the mother of all sins. That's very similar that people draw that from what Augustine said. Or one of my close friends, C.S. Lewis, says this, pride leads to every other vice, It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of of, of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. This is what pride does. It is the beginning of sin. And it has these kind of effects, which you can see, if this is true, maybe you're not convinced yet that this is true, but if this is true, if every other sin comes from pride, and if pride can do all of this, if it's complete anti-God state of mind, if every problem that really we experience in families and in countries is from pride, then we can see, wow, this is a serious thing that we should consider. And then in the book of James, he says this quote, and he's really quoting from Proverbs, but it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I and mean, do you want God to oppose you? Probably not. And yet every sin is birthed from pride. One of the things that can keep you and I from experiencing life with Jesus is pride. But let me tell you this, here's what's so dangerous about pride. Here's part of what makes it so dangerous about thinking about your life with Jesus or a word that we've kind of been looking at as we go through Luke is your discipleship because being a disciple is someone that Jesus calls into life with him and to then follow in his steps. One of the most difficult dangerous things for your discipleship is pride. Here's here's why it's so dangerous Because so many other things, so many other temptations or persecutions or tragedies, they're out there coming against our faith. Temptations get us off track of our faith, drawing us into things away from God. Persecution is persecuting us for our faith. Tragedy and trials might be things that test our faith. But here's what pride does. Pride actually infects and distorts our faith it infects and distorts our Christianity from the inside out. That's part of what makes it so dangerous. Part of what makes it so we don't even see it coming is we think it's actually a part of our faith. Again, here's how some people have said this. Augustine says, other sins find their vent in the accomplishment of evil deeds, whereas pride lies in wait for good deeds to destroy them. And it is a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices, talking about pride, can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. It infects and distorts our Christianity from the inside out. This is part of what makes it so dangerous, part of what makes it so difficult, part of what makes it such an obstacle to life with Jesus. Think about this really quick as we get into the text Luke, and I mentioned this a couple weeks back, we, we are in ch- just the very end of chapter 9. And really, the first nine chapters of Luke deal with this question, who is Jesus? And over and over again, about 11 different times, something, either that question directly or some sort of challenge to Jesus is posed saying, who are you? Are you this person? Are you this person? Who are you? That question over and over and over again is what Luke has been dealing with. And then in chapter nine, it says, okay, if you have the question of who Jesus is dealt with, now the next question is, what does it mean to follow him? And so we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Jesus says, here's what it, okay, you know, disciples, you know who I am. He asks, who do you say that I am? They say, you're the Messiah. He says, you're right. And then he says, now here's what it means to follow me. Those are the building blocks. But what we're gonna see here is immediately when that gets resolved, the very next thing that happens, they say, I know who Jesus is. And you might say that. I got it. I know what it means to follow him. I got it. The very next thing that happens is that pride is lived out in how they seek to do that. The very next thing that happens when they say, I know who Jesus is, I know what it means to follow him. The very next thing that it shows us is pride becomes the temptation. It becomes the instinct even by which they live out their faith. It is a very difficult thing. It is a very dangerous thing. And this is true for you and I today. And maybe even some of you that are not Christians and if you're watching online, maybe you're not a Christian. That might be the thing that you say amen to for the very first time in your life. You might say amen. I've seen Christians that are proud and it affects everything. And that might be even what turns you off about Christianity. It's not Jesus, but it's the pride that you actually see, the self righteousness that you see in Christians. And that's not just people that are not Christians. You might think that as a Christian. That's the thing I don't like about Christians. What we're going to look at is how pride can be very dangerous for our life with Jesus. We know that it's bad. We know that it harms us. We know that it harms others. We know it's not good for kind of the witness of our faith to those on the outside, but we often miss it. And if we want to be free from pride, like I am, if we want to be free from pride, I'm just kidding. If we want to be free from pride, if we want to grow in seeing how it plays itself out, if we want to be free from that, we have to see where it shows up and how to deal with it? And those are really the two things that we're going to look at, four different ways that pride manifests in our faith, and then how Jesus helps us to deal with this. So the first question that we're going to look at is this: How does pride manifest in what we are called to do? How does pride manifest in what we are called to do? You and I are called to different things. We're called to do different things. And when I say call, I don't, don't think about that necessarily vocationally, as in big picture, the calling of your life kind of thing, but just all the different things that God gives us to do in our life. Called to be friends and, and love each other. We're called to, if you're, if you're a parent, you're called to love and train your children. If you are a spouse, you're called to love and serve your spouse, your husband, your wife. If, if, if there is things in your work or school, you're, we're called to various things. Even if you think about from a serving standpoint, those of you that are leaders in the church or serving in various ways in the church, we're called to do those things. We're called to talk to people that don't know Jesus and be able to share our faith in a way that is loving and winsome and truthful. We're called to different things. And a lot of times we attempt those things and fail. We attempt to serve in certain ways and it doesn't go the way we thought it was gonna be. We attempt to resolve a conflict with a friend It doesn't go the way we thought it was gonna go. We attempt to have a good marriage and to invest in that, and it fails. It doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go. We attempt certain things that we're called to do and experience some failure in those things. And and here's what we often think at that point. We might think, I'm doing it wrong. We might think, "I'm, I'm not doing it the way I should do it. Or we might think, I need more information, If I had a little bit more knowledge, maybe if I could read a certain book or if I could take a class or if I could kind of get it right and figure it out, then I would be able to not experience the failure that I experience in those things. Maybe. That can be true. Education is good and doing it right is good. That can be true. But there's something that we Again, miss that our pride infects. What if the problem is not our abilities, but the problem, to just emphasize it a little different, the problem is our abilities. What if the problem is not our abilities, but it's our abilities? What if the problem in when we experience failure in things that we are called to do, that we attempt to do, what if the problem is that we are actually only leaning on our power, our strength, our wisdom, what we can bring to the table, and we are doing it alone, not considering God? What if that is the problem in some things? Pride manifests in what we are called to do and that oftentimes we think it's really just us and what we can do. Here's how we see this play out with the disciples. This is the beginning of what we're looking at. Luke nine thirty-seven. It says, the next day when they came down from the mountain, so if you were here a couple weeks ago, Jesus reveals himself on top of the mountain, can't get into all that again. The next day, a large crowd met him as they came down from the mountain. And just then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long Will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man, that's Jesus' title for himself, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, here's what is really interesting here. This is kind of towards the end of chapter 9. At the very beginning of chapter 9, Jesus commissions the apostles... To go out, to heal, and to specifically cast out demons and to preach. Those are the three things that they are given to do. And yet, here we see they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So here's what this means authority wasn't the problem, they'd been given authority, their experience wasn't even the problem. Sometimes we feel inexperienced and that's what our issue is. Their experience was not the issue. They had already done this and already experienced success. Their wisdom was not the issue. Their abilities were not the issue. But the issue, Jesus said, is this. You unbelieving and perverse generation, unbelief in when you look at the other gospels when this event shows up Jesus says that this can only come out through prayer which would indicate that they were not relying on God to do these things in fact their past experience their past success actually became the inhibition to their present difficulty they had already experienced success. They had already had experience. They had already seen, we can do this. This can happen. And here, they couldn't. And Jesus says, you know why? Unbelief. Unbelief, not just in some generic sense, but you're not asking me. You're not relying on my power anymore. See, some of us have had experiences in life where something is difficult, a marriage is difficult, a friendship is difficult, a conversation is difficult, an assignment, even a ministry assignment is difficult. And you ask God for his help and it's beyond what you can do. And you feel that. You feel there's no way I can, I can do this. There's no way I can have this conversation. There's no way that I can love this person. There's no way I can make it through this suffering. There's no way I can speak and help people. There's no way. And you pray to God. And he shows up in your life. And you feel his power. And it happens. God shows up and things take place. And you thank him and you praise him and you're, you go, man, there's no way those words just came to me. I had strength that I, you know, I, it didn't belong to me. God healed this, this area, this difficulty. And then the same thing happens, maybe a little bit later in the future. And because you made it through here, you now say, I know how to do that. I know how to get through that. I know how to make that happen. And we don't now rely on God. We don't pray and ask God to give us the power and the ability to make it through. You see, I believe sometimes God is going to let your experience fail you. He's going to let what got you through before not get you through today. Because he wants you to remember, it's me that gets you through. He wants you to remember. He wants you to come to him. He doesn't want you to think it's just in you that can make it happen. He wants you to come to him for every difficulty that you face. He wants you to experience his power at work in your life for every challenge that you are called to do. Not to just rely on experience and gifting and past information. God will often let you Fail if it draws you closer to him. If it helps you know, I need him. The difficulty, Jesus said here, was pride. It was their unbelief. I don't know where you feel stuck right now. There might be certain temptations that you feel stuck in. Man, I can't get over this thing. It just keeps, I keep falling into this sin. There might be certain temptations for you that, that you can't defeat maybe even things that you in the past did have victory in in some way. There might be relational difficulties where you feel stuck. And pride can make us ineffective. It can make us say, wait a minute, in the past I was able to get through this and now I can't. Pride can make us ineffective. So where do you go when you feel stuck? Stuck. Where do you go when you are called to do certain things and you're running up against a wall? Where do you go? Do you go to more information? Do you go to more effort? Do you just say, you throw up your hands and say, we've tried everything? It's in that moment that Jesus is inviting us to be humble and experience his power for what we cannot do by ourself. Pride will make us ineffective in what we are actually called to do. That's the first way it shows up. How does pride manifest and how we view ourselves, kind of our own view of our own identity, our own view of ourselves? Here, here's what takes place next. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. That's always a great argument to have when when Jesus is around, especially. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, Jesus knows your inner thoughts. He knows not just what you say to other people, but what's going on inside. Took a little child and had him stand next to him. And he told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. How's pride manifest in our view of ourselves? If, if we have pride, then it's gotta be recognized. Our status, our identity, what we take pride in has to be recognized by other people. We want other people to see how we see ourselves. So they ask the question, Jesus, which one is the greatest? And there's certain areas in our life where we are building an identity. We're measuring, here's who, how I know that I'm great. And we want other people, like they wanted Jesus, we want other people to recognize that. We want other people to see that. It does no good to know just in your own mind that you are the best at your job in the world if no one else sees it. It does no good to know I'm the best father that has ever existed if no one else recognizes that. We want other people to affirm our worth, and our identity. Think about that for you. You probably have not asked the question, which of us is the greatest? But where do you want other people to see you as great in some way? Or another way to think about it is this, where do you compare yourself to other people? Because that's what they're doing. Where do you compare yourself to other people? We don't, I never compare myself to athletes. It would be awful for me. I would be sitting alone in my room crying every day if that's what I compared myself to. But where do you compare yourself to other people? We compare ourselves to other people in some way where we are measuring and getting a sense of value and worth and significance. Where do you want other people to see that you're great? Where do you compare yourself to others? It might be family. It might be your morality. It might be your commitment. It might be your performance, your work ethic. It could be all sorts of things. Where do you compare yourself to other people? Or here's another question. Is just where do you think my way is better? Because if it's where we get our value from and our identity from, then we extend instinctively think that is the way, where do you think they're doing it wrong? My way is the better way. The way I do friendship is the better way. The way I do family and my choices for my kids is the better way. The way I think about things is the better way. When we have a sense of value, identity, significance in something, it doesn't just affect us. It affects other people as well. Because if it's our sense of value and worth, we have to measure others by it as well. And so what that does is we begin to neglect or push away other people that don't meet that standard. When we measure ourselves by a standard, we then measure other people by that same standard, which causes us to neglect, push away those people. We decide who is worth us based on where we are. We decide who can measure up to us. Pride neglects, pushes away others, which is why Jesus grabs a child. Jesus grabs a child and says, let me see, look, bring this child over here. He says, look at this child. And children in that society were considered very low. We we as a society value children more than they did. Children are still Not considered the most significant people. They don't have a bunch of money. They don't have, you know, a great career yet. Unless you're like a YouTube influencer or something. I mean, they're just—they're not as significant and powerful. We don't measure ourselves by children. We don't say, you know, I'm trying to think, how good am I at my job? Well, there's this five-year-old, and they're pretty good. And there's my boss. We don't—we don't measure ourselves by children. Jesus grabs a little child and says, "Yes, I know you think they're low." And even, let me just show you this real quick. This is the Mishnah. I know you probably can't read this. I can't read it either. But I'll show you an English translation. But the Mishnah was the rabbi's commentary on the Old Testament. So it was kind of the the traditional rabbinical commentary on various things in the Old Testament. And here's what it said. So this was around at this time. Here's what it said about kids. It says, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble, destroy a man. Now, morning sleep, some of you need to hear that. That might destroy you. Midday wine, some of you need to hear that. That might destroy you. But chattering with children. You want to know what's going to destroy you, talking with kids. That will destroy you. Because kids weren't considered significant. They were considered very low. And Jesus grabs the child and he says, Whoever is least, whoever's considered this could actually be a, is like getting drunk at noon, you know, talking with them. Whoever is least, this one is great. Now, here's what this means for us as we consider how pride affects our view of ourselves it means this your greatness, your identity, your worth, your value doesn't come from inside of you and it doesn't come from outside of you. It doesn't come from just how you view yourself and it doesn't come from what you do that you look at to measure where you are. It comes from your relationship to him. Jesus is saying, anyone that welcomes this child because of my name, in my name, they are considered great. Not because they're just awesome. Jesus isn't just saying, children are the best, so they're the greatest. He doesn't say the greatest. He just says the least is great. The least is great because of their connection to Jesus. Because they're made in the image of God. See, if we evaluate things based on ourselves, if our performance and our kind of whatever ladder that we make of our identity, if that's how we measure things, really kind of revolving around us, then sometimes we're doing good and sometimes we're doing bad and some people measure up to it and some people don't. But if, we, if the standard's completely different, if it's based on God, then because God made someone and because God values someone, then we say, they're great, but they haven't done anything. They're just a kid, but they're made by God. So they're great. This changes our identity. And it changes how we relate to other people as well. Changes how we view ourselves because we don't evaluate our greatness based on what we do and who we are. We evaluate based on what God says about us. Listen, some of you need to hear kind of a holy self-esteem. The last time I preached, I talked about how self-esteem and being centered on ourselves is bad, but some of you need to hear a holy self-esteem, which is to say that when God looks at you, he says, because I made you, you are great not because of what you do and not because of who you are inherently, but because of who I say you are. You are great. And it doesn't matter if you feel or even are the most insignificant of people. Jesus says, you're great based on your connection to God, which changes our identity and how we view ourselves, but it also changes how we relate to other people because we can't disdain or neglect those that don't measure up to our standard we look at people and have to love those that are considered lowly, have to move towards those that are considered lowly. Whether that's people with lower income or people that are children or people that are different from us and how we measure greatness, we move towards. We ignore greatness by our standards and focus on what God says. Is how it shows up in our view of ourselves. And, and even though we kind of covered this a little bit, there's another aspect of how pride manifests in how we view others. So the very next thing that happens, what they say, Jesus kind of teaches them this thing and says, don't, don't push away other people. Don't neglect other people because of how you view ourselves. And then here's how they respond. John responded, master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. I love this because basically Jesus gives them this story and says, don't push away other people, don't neglect other people in my name. And then John is like, well, that brings up an interesting story, actually. Um, So there was this guy that we kind of pushed away. What do you think about that? There's this guy that we kind of said, get away from us and you know, you're, you're insignificant. What, what do you think about that, Jesus? Just hypothetically, we had a friend that did this. What, do you, what would you say to that? And Jesus says, don't stop him. Whoever's not against you is for you. you see, what, what happens with pride is this. In our view of other people, our pride or our identity expands from me and how I view myself and how I gain my significance, it expands from me to we. It goes to group identity and group pride. This is where we want to be in, right? We want to belong. We don't wanna just be the best, we want to be a part of the best. We don't wanna just be good at something. We want to be invited in to the group of people that are good at something because that helps reinforce our identity. That helps reinforce our sense of significance and worth and value and whatever that thing is. You might be great at chess, for example. You might be awesome at it, but that doesn't do you that much good to just be in your room being amazing at chess. You want to be invited into the group of people that are great at chess. You want to be considered one of the top 20 chess players in Denver or whatever. I know that's a weird example. I've been playing a lot of chess on my phone. So that's what I'm thinking about. But whatever it is, we want to be considered in. We want to be in that inner circle. This is what happened with them. This is what happens with all sorts of group identities where we feel like our way is the best way. Our way thing is the best thing this expresses itself in all sorts of things from the silly to the serious whether that's sports and we kind of our team and people get very into our team and our team is the way and it's like your team you don't play you eat chips that's not your team but it's our team and we don't like the other team and we're rivals against them and in school it can be different cliques that form if you remember or if you are in school and it can happen even with cities, that if you're from a city that's like, I don't know, Toledo or something, and no offense, and you're just like, you're not really proud of that, probably, you're not like, I'm from Toledo. But if you're from Denver, people are like, yeah, I'm from Denver, and that's like a pride thing. And if you're from LA, that's, no one's like ashamed to be like, yeah, I'm from LA. People are like, ooh, wow. Do you know The Rock? Do you know Paris Hilton? Or I don't know, whatever. Do you, like, do you know cool people? Like, yeah, of course I do. Everyone I know from L.A. is cool. And that, you've got this sense of pride, right, in your city even. I remember meeting someone that said, oh, I'm from Miami. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. They're like, Miami, Ohio. I was like, oh, that's not awesome. <laughs> and there's all sorts of Midwest cities that are like, it's Florence. This is not Florence. And even Manhattan, Kansas. Like, that's not, that's not uh, Manhattan that I was thinking about. I hope I didn't book the wrong flight but we take pride in certain groups that we belong to. This can go expanding from that to our ethnicity and our race, and then we begin to think others are worse than us when we feel supreme in our thing, right? So it moves from me to we and begins to expand. Our way of doing education, our way of church even, I hate when I hear other people even, listen, there's false teacher or heretical churches, but there's a lot of churches that we have to say, we're on the same team. Maybe it's not the same group, but we're on the same team. This happens so often that we actually bolster our identity by our group belonging, which leads to this, exactly what happened with them. It, it, it leads to exclusion of other people. It leads to saying they're bad. They're not in our thing. It also leads to a common problem that we see today of virtue signaling, which is you have to make sure people know that you're in the in group. You need people to see, look, I'm good. I'm still a part of the group. Our pride manifests in how we view others because when it is our, my identity thing becomes our identity thing. And to keep that intact It's gotta be exclusive to some extent. You can't have a VIP club if everybody gets in. That's what the airport lounge told me. You can't have a VIP club if everyone's allowed in. So where do you see other people and look down? Because they're not a part of the group that you're in. Where do you see other people and because they don't do things the way we do things? you look down on them. Jesus says this, listen, the real question, if pride's not in the way, the real question is, who are you for? What are you for? Because if we're for ourselves and we're for our thing, then we've got to measure everything by that. And so people are in or out based on that. But if we're for him, if what we're really for, if the thing that really is giving us our sense of belonging in our identity is him, then that really starts to expand the borders of how we view other people. If really what our commitment is and our allegiance is, isn't just this and my worth in some sort of specific thing, but it's him. If that's who I'm for, and it's really hard to be against people from all sorts of different things. It doesn't mean you don't care about your sports team. It doesn't mean you don't care about your city. It doesn't mean you don't care about your, your race and your culture, but it, it's, it changes it. It brings it a level down. It says, I'm bonded with all sorts of people because of who he is. And anyone that's for him is for me. And anyone that's for what he's for it's for me, because I'm actually about that. It begins to change how we view other people. And then finally, it shows up in how we deal with opposition. How does pride manifest in our opposition? Here's the next story that we see with them. When the days were coming to a close for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans who hated the Jewish people and the Jews hated them to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went to Jerusalem another village. And again, I had to think about the humor in this situation. Say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? Like, have they done that before? They just failed at casting out a demon. Now they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I bet we can call down fire from heaven. That's a, that's a bit of a extreme kind of test of your abilities. And do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? It also seems like, couldn't Jesus do that if that's what he wanted to do? If I go to Tom Brady and said, "You want me to throw the winning pass? I can do it for you." It seems a little like, don't you think Jesus can handle this if He wants to do the fire? I also think it's just a bit of an overreaction, don't you think? (laughs) I mean, I've maybe preached some sermons that some of you don't like. I've seen people get up and walk out, but I don't. I don't. Maybe it's just I don't have good enough friends. I don't have any friends that have ever said, "Hey, that guy walked out. You want us to consume him with fire?" I've never seen that. I just need friends that are more loyal like these guys. They're just ready to throw down. I I need some people ready to throw fire when it's needed. Joking aside, this is actually an area I think that is very important right now. In a moment when you feel like people are against you, and, and I think even just if you think about our culture right now, if you feel at all like the culture is against you because of your faith, if you feel at all like, man, our nation's going down the tubes or our world, is, if you feel any of that, what happens in your heart when you start to think about that? What happens if you ever feel or you see news headlines about this Christian and they're persecuted or this thing happened or this thing and you, and you, you see kind of the things that go against Christianity? What happens in your heart? What happens in your heart when you see either your personal or just, again, kind of in the news or in our world, you see values challenged. You see biblical ideals and teaching challenged, opposed? What happens when you experience opposition for your faith or for our collective faith? What happens when you see sin in people's lives? And especially when it affects you. What happens when it's in family? When it's in friends? What happens in your heart? I think if we're honest, a lot of times, we don't have enough confidence in our abilities to call down fire, but that's the same heart posture. We, we feel this needs to stop. This is bad. These people are bad. This world is bad. This country is bad. These values are bad, and God needs to stop them, destroy them. We need Christian values to uprise again. We feel that a lot of times in our heart. When we see sin in other people, especially if it's affecting us, we feel, I can't believe that they would do that. I can't believe that they're like that. I see its effect. It's damaging them. It's damaging our family. It's damaging our relationship. Why are they doing it? It's bad. We feel the judgment in our hearts. And what Jesus says here, what Jesus says is much different If we experience judgment in those incidents, what's happening is, really, you have to ask this question. Why am I in? Or even, why do I have the values that I have? Why do I believe the things about the Bible that I believe? Why why, why is that sin not present in my life? And if we think it's just because of us, then we have self-righteousness if we think it's just because of us and our goodness and our ability to discern and our, if we we think that, then we are righteous in ourselves and condemn others. But if we remember and realize it's grace, I've been given grace by Jesus. I've been saved by Jesus. I've been given compassion by Jesus. I'm worthy of fire coming down and consuming me. But Jesus stood in the way for me. Jesus took what I deserve and gave me grace. See, if that's where we are, then I'm not saying we don't look at things and say they're wrong. There's a view in our culture that says, you're judgmental just if you say something is wrong. But that's not what God says. You should judge. You should be able to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. Jesus doesn't say, hey, all the Samaritans, they're great, you guys are so judgmental. That's not the problem. The problem is, the heart. The problem is the spirit. The problem is when you see wrong and call wrong wrong, when you see that, do you feel compassion or do you feel condemnation? Do you feel a desire for that person to experience mercy and grace? When you see the problems in our culture and the values in our culture, do you cry? Do you weep or do you just get angry? That's what Jesus is diagnosing here. Our pride, if we believe that our righteousness comes from ourselves, will lead us to judgmentalism. If we believe it comes from him, then we're thankful for him and we're charitable towards other people. We're gracious, we're merciful, we desire more for other people. It changes our spirit. It gives us a kindness and a mercy. These are four different ways that pride shows up. And I don't know, maybe you identify with all of these, or maybe you only identify with one or two of them, but this is how pride will infect and distort our Christianity. It's not just a big bad temptation out there. It's something that actually works from the inside out. That even in the things that we do for God, we might do in our own pride and our own strength and even how we evaluate ourselves and our Christianity, we may think about how great we are, and then we instinctively degrade the value of other people. And we may think about how we are in and how we're a part of the right thing, and thus exclude other people or need the recognition and approval that we are in. And when we experience opposition, we will be judgmental and self-righteous, instead of charitable and compassionate. And so here's the final thing to look at, is just what do we need to free us from pride? If it shows up in all these different ways and it's the root of all sin and one of the things that can be most damaging, what do we need to free us? And there's two things that we see in these passages. The first is that we need correction. That's part of what's happening today. But we need correction in all of these incidences, Jesus has to say, that's wrong. That's not the way. Because listen, we instinctively do these things and it feels right, actually. It actually can feel right. Even if you go through those things, be like, yeah, it feels right to call down fire on those fools. Yeah, it feels right to say, I don't, that guy's not, he's just like a a free agent, kind of independent contractor exorcist. That's not, he's not a part of us. It feels right to kind of be suspicious of that. It feels right to think that we are great and those lesser are not. There's there's something in those things that instinctively feels right even to our faith. And so we need correction. We need Jesus to speak into our life and call those things out. And listen, if you don't think that you are affected by this, we all are. I love what C.S. Lewis says bluntly, if you think you are not conceited, It means you are very conceited indeed in his chapter on pride. See, it affects all of us. And the first step to be free from this is we have to be corrected. We have to sit under the teaching of Jesus, whether that's on a Sunday or that's part of why community is important. The way that we get the words of Jesus into our life today is not Jesus physically speaking to us, but it's usually through the words of other people. We are proud until someone speaks the word of Jesus showing us, do you see what you're doing here? Jesus rebuked them, he rebuked them, he rebuked them over and over again. We need friends to speak the words of God into our life just like Jesus did for them. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that we need to see him for who he is. This passage that I read earlier, He says, right after he cast out the demon and tells them about their unbelief, he says, the son of man, and he's already told them this, but he's saying it again. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. This is who Jesus is reminding them. Remember who I am. Remember that I am the humble savior that is going to be rejected. Remember that I am the humble savior that is about to go to death, which he's told them earlier in the chapter. I'm about to pick up my cross. I'm about to die. I am about to walk into pain and crucifixion to save. I am not seeking to push myself up and elevate myself. I am lowering myself, humbling myself to the point of death to serve you, to save you. Remember who I am, Jesus is telling them. Listen, we we can't be free from pride if our view of Jesus is wrong. But when we remember who Jesus is, the humble king, the servant king, the suffering savior, the one that invites people to himself, when we see that, that has to frame everything else that we think about, what it means to walk with him, what it means to do life with him. We can't have this humble king that lays down his life and we think, let's call down fire. That's not not who he is. We can't think we have this, this humble king that calls people to himself and we're so concerned about who's in and who's out. We can't have this savior who is willing to be rejected and we're thinking about how great we are. See, however you view Jesus will affect how you seek to do life with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, remember who I am. That's why I love that he uses these words and says, let these words sink in. That's to say, you already know this. I've already told you, it was only a few verses back. But this needs to sink in. It needs to go layers deep the truth that you know about me and who I am and how I'm humble, servant, saving king, compassionate to the weak, that truth that you know about me, let it sink in because you're gonna be tempted to be self-righteous, because you're gonna be tempted to be exclusive, because you're gonna be tempted to think of your own greatness. So let these words sink in. Let them be an anchor that holds you down When every temptation towards pride is blowing you towards other things, let them sink in. That's what we need. We want to have life with Jesus, we don't want pride to get in the way. We don't want it to affect our faith and we don't want it to affect our relationship to other people and we don't want it to affect the things that we're called to do and we don't want it to affect kind of the the reputation of, of Jesus or of our faith. We don't want that to happen. We want to have life with Jesus. We want to have humility and that happens when we're aware of who he is and we let who he is sink down into who we are. We're going to take communion, and when we take communion, that's really what we're remembering. Even the act of eating something, the act of eating something is the truth of who Jesus is sinking down inside of us. We're saying that this humble Savior who is going to be the Son of Man betrayed into the hands of men whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, that needs to sink down inside of me so that it affects every area of my life. And so when we take communion today, my encouragement to you is to first of all confess where pride has been present, where it has been present in all sorts of areas, but where it's been present probably in particular in a way that's distorted our faith, our Christianity, to confess those things and to to let the words sink in, even as you take it and, and it goes down. Ask God to make real to you that the savior that you have is the humble servant king. Just as food becomes a part of our body as we digest it and it kind of, I don't know the whole process, but kind of unites with us. Ask, ask God as you take communion for the truth of who he is to get inside of you so that our faith is humble, that our relationships are humble, that our identity is humble, that even the things that we are called to, we are humble, relying on him. I'll pray for us, and then I'll also be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything going on in your life, if you need if you'd like to request prayer for healing for something or prayer for just other things going on in your life, I'd love to pray for you. Jesus, we thank you that you show yourself as the humble Savior, that you are the one that gave your life for us, that you were rejected for us, that you, that you look at us with compassion not judgment, that you look at us not having to measure some standard of greatness, but we are who we are by our connection to you, your humility, your servant-heartedness. We thank you that that's who you are, and we ask that you would change us and transform us to humbly receive you and to then be like you.